Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing, which the water teems, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move across the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for, for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, the sixth day. Good morning, and welcome again to Trinity Heights Worship Service. And welcome back to those of you returning to New York City to start a new semester, perhaps, as, as unconventional as this semester might turn out to be. I know, I know there are no in-person classes, but I know one or two of you have returned to the city. So welcome back, even though um, I'm not actually in New York at the moment. I'm speaking from the UK, where I'm beginning my uh, final year of research for my PhD. So I'm excited about getting that done. Just to let you know, after the service, we'll have a Zoom coffee, so I hope you can uh, all connect there after this. Now, we've just been through a brilliant series led by our very own Tim Kreber. Thanks, Tim, and Brian and Nick for leading us through a, a very thoughtful series over the summer, looking at the theme of exile. And of course, as we noted at a, at a time like this with COVID and racial divides, police brutality, protests, violence, the most sordid aspects of our history rearing its ugly head. And to top it all off, it's an election year. Looking at all this, exile, I think, has been a very appropriate thing to be thinking about. And in some ways, as we begin a new series in Genesis, we're going to continue with that theme of exile. Because many scholars believe that Genesis was written and was collated during a period of exile. But regardless of when it was written, Genesis is certainly the sort of literature that would have been read during exile. Imagine if we were taken away from America, driven out of our own country. Perhaps one of the things we might do is return to our nation's founding stories. Or perhaps for a segment of the population who have felt exiled all along because they have been marginalized in America, we might even go back and reconsider the foundational story and offer an alternative telling. I'm thinking of the 1619 project. Both origin stories have different things to commend them, but the point is the very act of going back to the beginning is what people do in times of distress. And Israel, Israel's world, was turned upside down as a community traumatized by war, living in a foreign land, Israel returned often to their own foundational stories. They would go back to the beginning and find that these stories would shed a new light on their current situation. So this morning, we're starting a new series in the book of Genesis. Actually, we're just going to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And in these opening 11 chapters of the Bible, we will stand for a moment in paradise. We will come across deadly forbidden fruit from forbidden trees. We will encounter a talking snake that 
disconcertingly finds its way into paradise, into the garden. We will read about, what were they? Angelic beings, perhaps, sleeping with women? Noah's Ark will be boarded by animals. There will be catastrophic floods. Noah will get drunk and naked. We'll look up at the Tower of Babel as it reaches into the heavens. And we will hear a cacophony of voices as the language of this world is confused. These are just some of the many strange things that are crammed into these first 11 chapters of the Bible. I love Genesis 1 to 11. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. Think of it in terms of a prelude, a prelude which sets the scene and prepares the way for what is to come. It draws us into the world of the impending drama, but by setting up questions, creating mysteries, heightening tensions, all seeking their own resolutions throughout, not just the rest of Genesis, but actually throughout the rest of the Bible. So today, my ambition in digging into this prelude, this, this ancient prehistory, this past before there was a past, is to help us all make the mental shift from seeing these passages as these sort of detached from the rest of the Bible, or utterly detached from our own lives in their strangeness, and provide some tools for a fruitful reading of these chapters in our own uncertain times as they are with these weird and, and wonderful things. My parents live just down the road from Oxford, so when we were visiting them last Christmas, we went into Oxford and stopped into one of my favourite bookstores there. And as I was perusing the shelves, I just happened to glance up and found a book which had just been released toward the end of 2019. Remember 2019? I call it the Year of Innocence. <laughs> Well, the book I found was the latest offering from Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford biologist and very vocal atheist who has published numerous New York Times bestsellers. I've been following him for some time now, and so out of curiosity, I picked it up to see if he had anything new to say. At one point, near the beginning, Dawkins describes the book of Revelation in the Bible. He, he talks about the weird and bizarre images that we find in there dragons and sea monsters, whores and beasts. It's, a, it's as bizarre as the first few chapters in Genesis, really, and written as a record of John's vision or dream. And so Dawkins concludes, hey, I have lots of weird dreams too, but I'm just not silly enough to write them down. So apparently Richard Dawkins doesn't know that Revelation is actually politically dissident literature written in a coded language so as to protect those in possession of the letter from, from the, the brutal state machinery. No, he actually thinks John was just recording his dreams for posterity. So he wrote this at the end of last year, but it reminded me of something Dawkins had said 36, about 36 years earlier in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, where Dawkins refers to the creation story in Genesis as an alternative to the theory of natural selection. So think about this for a moment. Here is a grown man who teaches zoology at Oxford, no less, who thinks that Genesis chapter 1 is a rival account of how things came into existence, and he thinks that Revelation is John's dream journal. I'm sure he was trying to make some point like, well, the Bible's a book full of nonsense, 
but all he's really demonstrated is that after more than three decades, Richard Dawkins still hasn't learned how to read. It's just words passing in front of his eyes. And as I pointed out before, he actually has a lot in common with fundamentalist Christians who also claim, just like Dawkins, that Genesis chapter 1 is a rival account to evolution. A friend at Trinity Heights, who at the time would not identify as a Christian, decided earlier this year to read through the entire Bible from beginning to end, which I think is a fantastic endeavor, but, but something she cottoned onto pretty quickly was that in the Bible is a vast array of different literary genres. The Bible is filled with different types of literature that demand that they be read in different ways. Now, this fact seems to have eluded Dawkins altogether, or, or perhaps he's become so cynical, he just says things which he knows aren't true in the hope that some of it will stick. But either way, it's absolutely vital to recognize the different literary genre if we're going to appreciate the full weight of meaning in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and the, and the way that this book continues to flow through us and in a hundred different ways. So this stuff about literary genre is our first point, which I, I'll reinforce here with this thought from Rowan Williams. Here is a collection of books that includes, among other things, codes of law, poetry, chronicles, letters, polemical texts attacking society, and visionary records. The diversity of the Bible is as great as if you had within the same two covers, for example, Shakespeare's sonnets, the law reports of 1910, the introduction to Kant's critique of pure reason, the letters of St. Anselm, and a fragment of the Canterbury Tales, all within the same two covers, only the chronolo chronological span of the books of the Bible is even longer than that of the examples just given. He goes on to say the temptation is often to reduce the huge variety of texts to one kind of thing. The reality is, as soon as you think you know what the Bible is, you turn the page and it turns into something different. If we're really serious about reading Genesis 1 to 11, then we have to take this idea about literary genre very seriously. In fact, one of the reasons why we're taking these first 11 chapters together, and one of the reasons why they're often treated together but separately from the rest of Genesis and have entire commentaries devoted to just these first 11 chapters uh, as, as if it were a separate book from the rest of Genesis is because it's widely recognized that these first 11 chapters are a different kind of literature within the book of Genesis. So you see, it's not just that the Bible is full of different kinds of literature, but sometimes within the same book, we find different kinds of literary genre. So, let's start by asking, what kind of literature is this? Some people insist that this is just straight up history, and we just got to read this literally, and anything else but a literal reading of this chapter is unfaithful to the author's intent. Is that how we're meant to read it? What clues does the text itself provide? Well, first of all, there is the language the author uses which in, in our English translations alone, we don't get to appreciate in quite the same way. But thanks to some brilliant Hebrew scholars, this isn't an insurmountable problem for us. Oh, and, and uh, just as an aside, I think it's really important to remember that the Bible is not my book or your book, but it's our book. 
it's the church's book. We don't read it alone, but we read it together in community. And the great thing is that in that community, we have gifted teachers, we have gifted scholars who are called to, to help us read together. And one of the things that these scholars point out is that when Genesis says that God created the sky, it describes the sky as a hammered out metal dome. Now, unless we're going to insist that the sky is literally a hammered out metal dome, then we are already, all of us, not reading Genesis literally. It also calls the sun and the moon lanterns or oil lamps. Now, there are perfectly good Hebrew words for sun and moon, but for reasons which we'll consider next week, the author doesn't use those words. Instead, he calls them oil lamps. The point is, unless you're insisting that the sun and the moon are in fact giant oil lamps, literally lanterns hung from the big metal dome that is the sky, then you are already not reading Genesis, literally. So, given that none of us believe that the sky is a hammered out metal dome, or that the sun and moon are literally oil lamps hung there, we can say that the language of the text starts to point us away from a strictly literal interpretation. But as well as the language the author uses, we also have to consider the way the author structures or shapes his story. Genesis chapter 1 has a really interesting structure, and it grows out of this phrase, the earth was formless and empty. Genesis 1 finds its shape around these words. What we notice is that in the first three days, God brings form out of formlessness through a series of separations. He separates light from darkness. He separates the sea from the sky. And he separates the land from the sea. Now it's no longer formless. He's created form out of the formlessness. But it is still empty. Remember, it says that it was formless and empty. So now over the next three days, day four, five, and six, God fills the void, he fills the emptiness. What's more, day four, five, and six actually correspond, as we'll see in a moment, to days one, two, and three. And when we recognize this structure, it answers some really, uh, some other puzzling features of the text. For, for example, have you ever wondered why the sun and the moon come on day four? Now, if, if there was no sun before day four, then how did the first three days happen? Now, people have come up with all sorts of really interesting theories to make it fit with scientific facts. Perhaps the author is trying to uh, describe how things look from Earth. And so there was a primordial mist or canopy that was sort of obscuring the view of, of the sun and moon until it was cleared on day four, making them visible from the Earth. And other theories get stranger still. But actually, the fact that the sun and moon appear on the fourth day needs no scientific explanation whatsoever because it has nothing to do with science. But it does have to do with art. It's an artistic decision to do with the structure of the story. It's what they call parallelism. On day one, God separates the night from day. On day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, God separated the sea from the sky. On day five, he fills the sea with fish and the sky with birds. On day three, God separated the land from the sea. On day six, God fills the land with living creatures. And of course, he creates humanity, man and woman. It might help to imagine this 
as a watercolor. The artist wants to capture the landscape, and so they approach this blank canvas, which is formless and empty. And at first she paints the sky and the, the land, the sea, with perhaps a peninsula jutting out. So now this form and structure, but then she goes on to fill in the details, perhaps a lighthouse on that peninsula, a boat on the waves and seagulls in the sky. This is artistic. So while Genesis chapter one is not strictly poetry, the language and the structure of the text suggests that this is not straight prose either. It's what's been referred to as high prose. And as such, it's not meant to be read as straightforward history. We are in fact being invited into a very rich symbolic world. And as we begin to understand the symbolic world, we are given insight into our own. And we'll see how that works in the next week or two. Just now, I use the analogy of a watercolor landscape. But the analogy which the ancients would have made and recognized pretty quickly, in, in, right here in Genesis 1, is actually not between creation, the story of creation and a watercolor. That, that may be quite natural for us. But the analogy that the ancients would make, again, quite naturally for them, would be between this creation narrative and the construction and inauguration of a temple. The temples in the ancient Near East would only become functioning temples after they went through an, uh, an inauguration ceremony. Often the temple inauguration would last, coincidentally, seven days. In other words, the temple is not a functioning temple just because there is a temple structure, that, that form of the building in place. The empty space, the form of the temple, had to be furnished. And so part of the inauguration ceremony would be to fill the temple by bringing in the furniture, the functionaries, the staff, the scepter, bringing all of that into the temple. And this obviously parallels God giving structure to creation and God filling creation from the formlessness and emptiness. But even a fully constructed and fully furnished temple was not actually a fully functioning temple. The climax of a temple inauguration is when the deity enters his prepared residence and rests there as he assumes the rule of the cosmos of the universe from his temple throne. Genesis chapter one is obviously drawing a parallel between the creation and temple inauguration. It says on the seventh day, God rested. Well, you can already see where this is going. This is often seen uh, when it's read through Western eyes, modern eyes, as not really being part of creation. From our perspective, no creation happened on the seventh day. God just rests. So it's often seen as a sort of a postscript. P.S. God rested. But in actual fact, God resting on the seventh day is the supreme creative moment. It's the moment where creation becomes a fully functioning temple for the living God. Now, there are so many important ways that this text can give shape to our lives, even in these chaotic times. I want to highlight one for us this morning. What happens if we think of creation as God's temple? This story gives us an understanding of God 
who is not far off and detached from his creation, which is often called theism. Theism is the idea that God created the world and wound it up and let it go like a clockwork toy. But, but this story gives an understanding of a God who is not far off. But at the same time, Genesis presents the God who is not to be collapsed into creation and confused with his creation as if they were the same thing. So that if creation ceased to exist, God would cease to exist as well, which is a view often referred to as pantheism, where, where God and creation are, are one and the same. Instead, while God is distinct from creation and transcends creation, he is also present with his creation the one who makes creation alive he resides with his creation this is called creational monotheism and this is of foundational importance in order to understand the rest of the bible and for the rest of the bible to make sense it is this configuration of the relationship between god and creation through which we're invited to understand how and why things have gone wrong and again, we'll look in more detail as, uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. And it's this configuration of the relationship between God and creation through which we're invited to understand what God is doing and, and what God is going to do about what's gone wrong. And this configuration of the relationship between God and creation helps us understand the mission of Jesus Christ. Because one day in politically volatile times, Jesus goes into, the, into Jerusalem and climbs the Temple Mount. And he storms into the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers and drives them out of the temple. And he says, it is written, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The temple, seen through the lens of Genesis, is a model of the universe. Through the symbolic cleansing of the temple, Jesus was saying that, that through him and his work, God had begun to reclaim creation, his temple, creation, for himself. So, if creation is God's temple, and we want to participate in Jesus' reclamation project, then it absolutely matters what we do with creation. We're not intended to do just whatever we want to do with creation. Whatever we're doing, whether it's the way we treat the environment, whether it's the way we treat animals, or how we treat each other, and how we treat our own bodies, if we keep this sacred temple in full view, then all of these things have a far deeper significance than we might have ever imagined. So I'll leave you this week with this question to think about. We are part of creation. We are part of this temple. In your own life, if Jesus were to start his temple reclamation project in you, his, new, his creation reclamation project in you, and he started turning over the tables, which one would he start with? <laughs>